Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and we're trying something a little bit new on this episode as I'm joined by a panel of smart people, Jocelyn Formsma, Maya Roy, and Owen Charters, to discuss how charities that serve those in need also need our help right now. As Maya and Owen wrote together in a recent op-ed, across all provinces and territories, people turn to us as trusted community service providers to cope, connect, and recover, and they need us now more than ever. They go on to note that they continue to be negatively affected by rising costs and diminishing revenues, and that without urgent financial support from the government to help us survive the next 12 to 18 months and make it to the other side of the pandemic, a gap in essential services will be created that will be difficult and far more costly to replace. Now, before we jump into the conversation, let's take a few minutes to get to know the organizations that Jocelyn, Maya, and Owen serve, starting with Jocelyn Formsma, the Executive Director of the National Association of Friendship Centers. The National Association of Friendship Centers represents over 100 local friendship centers and provincial territorial associations across Canada. And basically what we do is we are urban Indigenous service providers, first and foremost, community hubs and Essentially, we provide culturally relevant, culturally guided programs and services and community and cultural connections for Indigenous people living in urban centres. And urban can mean anything from a community of over a thousand to over 30,000. And we're also in every major city in Canada as well. Next, we have Owen Charters, who is the president and CEO of the Boys and Girls Clubs of Canada. Boys and Girls Clubs, we've been around 120 years now. We're in about 800 different communities, serving 200,000 children and youth across the country, and by extension, their families as well. We've started originally in the after-school space, and and that's morphed over the years to to include a lot of social service provision, human services um, support that children and and families need that comes from working in a lot of high-risk, often racialized neighborhoods, and, and doing the work that we think needs to be done, not just to keep kids safe after school and and in a good place, but but keeping them away from risks and harm and keeping them active and, and giving them all the opportunities they could, they could have. And last but not least, Maya Roy, the CEO of the YWCA Canada. I'm with the YWCA Canada. And so we have uh, 34 shelters for women and gender diverse people across the country for leaving abusive relationships or a situation of of sexual exploitation or human trafficking. We also have 2,000 units of affordable housing. So with 31 locations across the country, basically our job is to try and figure out on the ground how how to advance gender equity. My wife works for Gilda's Club Greater Toronto, and they have seen an incredibly negative impact on donations, in-person events. Obviously, they run a, a big fundraiser every year a one-time event to, to bring in dollars. And this is not unique across the sector. Walk me through how your organizations have been negatively affected by this crisis and what the financial impact has been. The, the impact has been pretty broad and widespread. At, at, at first, it's been hard to quantify. I mean, at the first, I think back last March, what we saw was that clubs were closing their doors, staff were laid off. We have about 7,000 staff across the country. And at the beginning, many probably 50 to 60% were laid off because if the services can't be provided, the staff can't, can't work. What we've seen is, is that impact has changed dramatically in terms of how the organization's been running, um, but also the impact on the community. And so I want to talk about, I think, in both those two streams, that one, what we saw immediately was actually an increase in demand, an enormous increase in communities saying, look, we need we need more help. It's not the after school pieces we need. What we often see is that the clubs are providing emergency food supports. You know, I remember late last spring seeing a very long 
long lineup of cars outside of our East Scarborough club who were picking up food supports uh, much longer than usual and clubs struggling to actually bring in enough food and enough donations and enough um, human resources capacity to support that. So immediately what we saw was we had to bring people back. We saw that fundraising there was an, an initial push to get some big dollars in the door, um, but it's been a real struggle to do, as you say, the events like gala events or typical annual fundraising events. And some of that, that fundraising has been hard to access. So quantum, what we've seen, you know, government supports and subsidies have helped enormously, but still we're down by about um, across our federation, at least 20 percent in 2020. And we're predicting a greater drop of at least 40 percent potentially in 2021. And those dollars aren't being made up anywhere else. And we're not seeing that fundraising is there to support it. So the demand continues to increase. Families and, and, and clubs, you know, clubs are open again and, and families are, are accessing support. But the demand for more and the way we, we provide it, the costs have unfortunately gone up. And, and that's probably where the biggest squeeze is, is, is trying to do more with less. I would echo everything that Owen said and more in the early days as we saw a lot of services, especially businesses, closing their doors. Friendship centers, you know, had to kind of navigate how to serve a community when we couldn't gather, which is kind of like a core principle of like a lot of Indigenous, you know, values. And and so we had the same issues, needing to do more. Friendship centers responding to the call, not able to do their fundraising. and then. I think an additional layer, um, just from an urban Indigenous perspective, is that we actually had a lot of early finger pointing, I guess, where either level of government wasn't quite sure which had the most responsibility and who was going to step in. So um, nationally, we were talking to the federal government saying, well, what are the provinces doing? And then regionally, our uh, provincial territorial associations talking to their respective provinces and territories saying, well, what is the federal government doing? So we actually had to try to like, you know, communicate amongst our, each other so that we had a national picture of what was happening in the regions and then advocate nationally. I think our network was was fortunate that we were able to get some national support, which really, really helped. And I think the work from the Indigenous Community Support Fund could be an example of how we could transfer over to the broader not-for-profit sector. But now what we're facing is the looming fiscal year end. So all of the funds and all the supports that we've been receiving, um, which a lot of it came in the last five or six months. So now we have the challenge of having to spend before the end of March 31st. And then what happens to the folks who show up on April 1? Are there going to be supports there for them uh, well into this new fiscal year? So yeah, it's it's been uh, every week it changes and it's been very challenging on our workers, on the leadership at the local levels. And I would say mental health has been probably one of the number one things that we've been worried about amongst our network. It's interesting when you say that the Indigenous Support Fund might be a model for the broader charitable sector. And I do want to get to what the solution might be. So, so it's interesting to hold on to that idea. The challenge of urban Indigenous populations is a constant challenge I find at the federal level where provinces that are ultimately on the funding partner in many respects, but the federal government, I, I personally believe, really needs to be a, in a more serious active role. So I'm glad to see that that's started to happen in a more earnest way in the course of this pandemic. Maya, when you look at your organization and Owen and Jocelyn have both talked about increased demand, but declining 
fiscal resources. The same holds true of the YWCA? Unfortunately, yes. At, at the start of the pandemic, it was quite grim. I mean, we saw domestic violence rates and, and request of services at our shelters increase anywhere from 20 to 40%. Unfortunately, you know, isolation and quarantine and lockdown with your abuser can actually be a death sentence. Um, so for women and gender diverse people trying to leave, you know, how do you leave an abusive situation if transit has been shut down, if you can't get a restraining order in, in the courts. I actually had a woman reach out to me just through a media interview that I did, and her partner um, was basically taking away access to data on her phone um, and trying to figure out a, a way for her to leave. And so we actually found a way to get her to a shelter in, in another part of uh, the province because of that. So, you know, that as Jocelyn and Owen described, not only did the intensity of the demand for services increase, this was at the same time that we were having to lay off staff. We were shutting down our daycares, uh, some very, very grim calls. You know, I, I have weekly calls with our 31 CEOs across the country and, and people were saying, well, today I had to lay off X number of people. So quite grim. And I think for us, you know, we made a decision early on that, yes, we were being tested as, as leaders, as activists, as community members. But we also agreed that, you know, we couldn't give in to fear-based decision-making. So for example, in, in the town of Banff, because they rely on tourism, at one point in Banff, there was and is a 90% unemployment rate. Um, so we basically had to pivot all of our operations on a dime. And many of the YWCAs, like, for example, will have a social enterprise, a social enterprise hotel, or, for example, a store selling repurposed clothing developed by community members. And when all of that shut down and we were trying to transition that remotely, um, similar to what Owen said, I would estimate we've lost about 40% of our fundraising revenue while, while people need more. So we've definitely been focused on what is it that the community needs and what do we need to do next to, to meet those needs. We've had this conversation among some caucus colleagues about the need to support the charitable sector. And one question that arises, Jocelyn, you mentioned a federal Indigenous support fund that has been incredibly important. We obviously had a $350 million fund to address some of the increased need for services. Doesn't help you with your bottom line, but it, it does help in some ways address that increased need. There is the wage subsidy program that has helped in, in some instances. There is the commercial rent subsidy that is potentially of help. When you add up all of the federal support programs, what is the, the gap that remains for your organizations? There's a few things that are kind of on my mind with that. So one, I think that we have to recognize that we're dealing with a historic lack of investment in the not-for-profit sector. Um, certainly from a Friendship Center perspective, we've always kind of straddled the world of the not-for-profit sector, which we are. We're probably one of the larger networks in, in Canada, not just Indigenous. But on the other side, we are very much part of our communities, our, you know, Indigenous uh, First Nations, Métis, Inuit governments. We're, we're very much connected there. So we're constantly straddling these two worlds. But in terms of Indigenous urban service delivery, and I think it's the same across um, a lot of our partner federated organizations, this lack of investment over a long period of time has kind of brought us to the the situation we're in. So, you know, if you know, kind of don't keep the maintenance up in your house and then all of a sudden there's an emergency, you know, you kind of see the result of that. And so I think there's a there's an element of that in how we have 
both had to respond immediately because the community recognizes us, they trust us, but then also trying to make up for time and, and trying to build capacity immediately uh, to be able to, to provide uh, a service that we haven't had the opportunity to scale up. For Friendship Centers, we've actually hired more people during the pandemic than we've had to lay off. And we've been able to retain a lot more folks, but the, the need and the demands from the community just continually growing. And, you know, we've had friendship centers who have gone out and found people. You know, we've got examples of folks who who have found out uh, a young person leaving care needed a place to live, that there was a pregnant mother who was living in a precarious living situation, that there was a family who received a food box but didn't have a, that their stove had broken down, so they needed to get a new stove. And so, you know, it's not just the service of here, let's give you a food box. It's all of the cultural care and wraparound supports that come with that work that we were doing. I, I would yep. agree with with Jocelyn. Like for us, it was very much trying to figure out those wraparound support and absolutely the wage subsidy, the rent subsidy, um, really helpful. But like with all things, the devil is in the details. And so for example, with with the commercial rent subsidy, if your landlord doesn't want you to get the rent subsidy, that puts you in a real situation as, as a charity. And, and that did happen to a number of the YWCAs across the country. So when the policies on the ground don't necessarily cover what people need or you know, the federal government is still trying to figure out the details. So for example, some of our childcare staff across the country were actually denied the CERB and told to apply for maternity leave through EI because they were pregnant. But in the meantime, how do you pay the bills? So I'm literally like calling Service Canada, trying to figure things out. It's been a really challenging, stressful time. And I think especially as charity, we're absolutely here and we're committed to pick up the pieces. But as, as Jocelyn pointed out, when when you have this systemic chronic underfunding, we're basically trying to do this work while our house is on fire. And so it's really, really challenging to rebuild and, and actually to build back better if, if we can barely keep the lights on. And, and that actually was our situation in the first six months. We honestly didn't know how many of us were going to survive. And, you know, literally some of the proposals, um, that I was putting out to, to funders, my title of the proposal was literally just, you know, keeping, keeping the lights on and keeping the shelter doors open. That that was our goal. Owen, when Maya talks about keeping the lights on and thankfully the commercial rent subsidy has been fixed on a going forward basis, at least directly to tenants. But when you look at the financial supports that are on the table from the federal government, but the continued need because of the decline in financial resources, but also the increased demand for your services, what is the delta that remains that you still require that financial support. Yeah, I mean, we, we did a calculation with our clubs and, and found that, you know, we're down by 20 million in the current year across our network. And that looks, uh, we predict it'll be at least that, if not greater in, in 2021 in the current year. And and that's also because we're actually seeing some provincial governments that are, are already providing funding guidance that, that is, is significantly reduced. So clubs in Newfoundland, for instance, recently saw major reductions in, in grant allocations that they, they count on in those communities. And so it's been interesting because I think the wage subsidies, the rent uh, subsidy program, those have really helped, but they're not a whole of enterprise solution. So unfortunately, what we see is we see organizations that are struggling because there's other costs that have really increased. Um, we lost a club in Northern Alberta through the pandemic that it had some financial precarity to begin with. 
But a lot of nonprofits exist with financial precarity. They don't have strong balance sheets because every dollar is a precious dollar and has to be spent on the cause. So they don't tend to build up reserves. So when the crunch comes uh, and the pandemic is more than a crunch, those organizations fail um, because they don't have anything in, in the bank to go back to. So the, the supports are, are of assistance, but they don't do things like what we've seen across the board in every industry, for instance, is the cost of insurance has has just skyrocketed. People haven't received their insurance renewals for the current year. They're going to be in for a surprise. The insurance industry as a whole has increased insurance premiums by 25 to 40%. And if you're a youth or child-serving organization where there are risks of, of the population you, you work with, those, those increases have actually uh, increased even more. So we see that the social safety net, the organizations that are on the front lines that are that net, that's where the holes are starting to appear. We're supposed to be there to catch people who are, as we, we've heard, especially those who have lost jobs, um, single parents, especially single moms who are, are looking for supports right now, are turning to our social service organizations. And yet our net is starting to fray more significantly than ever before. So the net may not be there to catch them in many cases. And I think those are the stories you know, we're hearing from Jocelyn and Maya, and what we're seeing on the front lines is that everyone's trying to get by with less, but the social safety net doesn't have much give in it. So our organizations don't have extra to, to supplant what has been lost, uh, and in fact, are being asked to do a lot more. So, so that delta of 20 million I spoke to is probably bigger if we start to think about things like accessing N95 masks, reducing capacity in, in, in some of our community spaces because of, of social distancing, or just the fact that we need more more, more food supports and, and more demands. So some of the applications for some of the early emergency subsidies, we didn't even anticipate that the demand would be so great. So the demand far out, outstrips the supply at this time. And when we look at bridging your organizations through this crisis because of the necessity, I mean, the, the critical services you provide into our communities. Jocelyn, you mentioned the Indigenous Support Fund as a potential model for potentially expanding it to the charitable sector writ large. Owen and Maya, you've written recently pointing to the Veterans Organization's Emergency Support Fund, a specific fund for legions in my community receive funding to support them through this crisis and bridge them through this crisis. Interestingly, in the fall economic statement, we saw a highly affected sectors credit availability program, knowing that travel and tourism, performing arts and and live performances are deeply affected and and disproportionately affected versus other for-profit enterprise. And yet we didn't see support for charities and an acknowledgement that just as travel and tourism have been decimated, our charitable sector, even more crucial to our social safety net, as you describe, has been decimated as well. A budget is coming up and Minister Freeland's considering possible options. What would you like to see in the budget? What would bridge your organizations through this crisis, both with respect to program design potentially, but also with respect to specific dollar amounts? As much as for Friendship Centers, the Indigenous Community Support Fund has been really helpful. When you look at what has come through that support fund for urban Indigenous, it really does not match the population. So majority of the Indigenous population is uh, living in urban, rural, remote northern communities and not necessarily on reserve in Métis settlements or Inuit living in the north and Inuit Nunangat. So if they're in the urban centers, I think what the federal government realized when they put out the first call for applications under the Indigenous Community Support Fund with $15 million for urban specifically, that the immediate response was way 
disproportionate to what they had available. All of a sudden, these Indigenous nonprofits were coming forward saying, we need support. This is what we're doing. This is the the homeless shelters and, and the Indigenous women shelters and uh, organizations that are run by Two-Spirit and um, other very specialized supports within urban Indigenous communities that really weren't get, getting support beforehand from anywhere else. So yes, I look to the Indigenous Community Support Fund as, as an example of something that could work within the broader not-for-profit space, but just with the caveat that there were issues there as well. And to broaden the terms and conditions to also include some of those like long-term planning pieces, right? So I think the way I'm kind of looking at it is that looking forward, there's sort of like three main categories. So the first is the emergency, right? Like putting out the fires, making sure that the lights can stay on for the next month or so, uh, making sure that your staff is paid and that you have the ability to not burn out the the precious staff that you have. There's the medium term to kind of, you know, build back better, get on our feet, build some capacity. And then third is the sustainability piece is how do we make sure, you know, okay, this house was a bit of a tinderbox and there was a lot wrong with the structure and foundation. How do we rearrange our policy to ensure that we're building stronger foundations, that we make sure that we're never in this situation again, because it seems like in any emergency situation we're called upon, but it's only for that short amount of time. And then they forget about the sector again once uh, until the next emergency comes up. Yeah, I'd I'd have to agree with you, Jocelyn. I think it's also very important to remember, as, as you're pointing out, Jocelyn, there's a lot of technical expertise and skill and sometimes I think because we also rely on voluntary donations, sometimes Canadians might forget that we're also a major driver of the economy. You know, the charitable sector contributes um, 8.5% to our GDP and, and also employs just under 2.5 million people. So it's it's also a really important foundational part of our economy in, in addition to the kinds of really important support services that, that we provide. So, you know, what I like to tease my colleagues sometimes and I say to them, I, I know sometimes people assume that we're just running around and hugging babies all day and, and, and you know, running fundraisers. But there's really important community development work. There's life skills. There's crisis intervention supports that that we're offering that I think um, as we're left to pick up the pieces, it's going to be really challenging without either bridging funding or some kind of a transport transformation fund. I know Imagine Canada talked about like a $9 billion fund, but one of the things our organizations have been speaking with each other about is, you know, having a $700 million fund where there's a flexible operating grant for charities to do the kind of work that they need to do and then report back to the government. Um, having to apply for grants, fill out paperwork, d- demonstrate our case for support and deal with red tape literally while the emergency is burning. Not only are our staff burning out, as, as Owen and Jocelyn have pointed out, many charities are going bankrupt because we're also not allowed by law and by funders. You know, you can't keep more than you know three months operating salary in the bank. We do operate under more constraints than small business and and the private sector. So having some kind of an 18-month flexible operating grant would actually allow us to do the work that we need to do. And then a transformation fund will actually allow us to build back better and position Canada as a real economic player in in this new economy. And Nate, I I would add, I I mean, I think this is one of those situations where it's pay now or pay later. And this is a situation where where if if the government, you know, $700 million is is not a, a small drop in the bucket. But I think what we're saying is if we're looking at a fund that allows 
organizations, and, and I think supporting what I'll call whole of enterprise organizations. So it's not about specific wage supports and it's not about rent subsidy. It's about the ability for an organization to look at all the, the cost burdens that it currently is facing and to apply for those in a realistic way, not as a replacement for revenue loss, but as a, as a what is needed now to get us through these next 18 months and continue in a way that the community needs, that that $700 million is well spent because it these organizations fail, the next step, it would be that um, it will come to government to say, these organizations no longer exist. The social safety net is entirely and solely your responsibility to support these Canadians that have fallen through, that have lost jobs during the pandemic, that have that have encountered new problems, whether that's health or, or economically. And those will cost more because they will have to be funded through a bureaucracy that doesn't exist yet, et cetera, or other program that will cost more to recreate. So the danger, I think, is in losing some of the great community assets that we have if we don't do this. And I think it's a small price to pay to do this now. And it's in included, as, as Maya mentioned, a transformational fund, which says that we also recognize that there are opportunities that we're seeing in this time. One of those opportunities is we're seeing community organizations, small ones coming together to say, we might be able to better operate together. And in, to do that, there are some costs to bring our, our organizations together to be more resilient so that whatever the next storm might be, hopefully not another pandemic, but we always know there's tough economic times as a cycle of markets, that we're, we're better placed in communities to better serve Canadians. So we've recognized opportunities already. We're seeing it in some communities where organizations are saying, there may be a better way to get through this, um, but it's going to cost us a little to make that organizational change to make that happen. We both need to get through the storm today, uh, and we need to be stronger and more resilient when we come out the other end. I'd also offer that the mechanics of it are very important, that we've seen some of the funding, the emergency benefit funding went through three key agencies, through the Red Cross, community foundations, and through the United Way which are great partners in many communities, but we're asking that it actually have a broader footprint of agencies that understand what's happening on the ground. There are more organizations like ours, like federations, but also ways to access, especially communities that are hurting the most, those that are racialized, uh, indigenous communities, especially as we've heard, this has been the she session, and we're better placed and closer to the community to understand what those needs may be. And, and that there'd be a bit of time spent in developing those channels for both understanding who needs the money and also the reporting back, that there can be a great deal of accountability presented back to government to say these dollars were spent wisely, these dollars were spent well, and they were spent with a great deal of scrutiny to what the needs actually were in the community. So in the short term, $700 million to bridge the charitable sector through this crisis to address the loss of financial resources and the hit to donations to address the increased capacity that you're having to serve. And then when we look to the next stage, which is ensuring that we are in the language of the fall economic statement and the language that we hear from the prime minister building back better, that fall economic statement references that Canada's recovery must ensure that young people have opportunities to gain skills, that all Canadians have a roof over their heads, that women can participate fully in our economy, that lost opportunities for racialized Canadians and Indigenous peoples are restored, referencing the need to support Canadians with disabilities, address gender-based violence, and ensure access to affordable childcare. All of these goals of an, of an inclusive recovery are going to, in many ways, rely upon organizations like yours. So $700 million to bridge your organizations through this crisis. And what kind of support are you looking for for then what comes next in supporting the government's efforts and our society's efforts in building a more inclusive recovery? 
Owen mentioned around, you know, pay now or pay later. I think that's really important because, so for example, we know, and there's been many studies um, around this by, by economists, that a lot of the jobs that have been lost during this pandemic, especially with increasing automation, those jobs are not coming back. And it's particularly Black, Indigenous, people of color, women and gender diverse people who are going to lose out. So for example, the organizations that do a lot of work with the flow through labor market access dollars, the federal government flows through to the provinces and territories. These charities that are offering, you know, the reskilling, the life coaching, um, the employment access programming, that's not only an investment, but if you don't pay for that now, you're going to pay for it on the other end. We know that we need to invest in the kind of job and skills retraining programs to set people up for a knowledge economy and a vastly different labor market post-pandemic as as many people will be asked to continue working working remotely. So it's not just, you know, sort of charities trying to uh, survive for the sake of surviving. It's also about setting up Canada to build back better. This is, it's an investment now. I should also clarify, this is specifically investment in those that are human services or social service organizations to make sure that those, these agencies are there to provide what's needed now and, and what's needed over the next 18 months. I think it's a very different story for arts and culture organizations. And I think that's that's a, a conversation that needs to be had with those leaders, that there's a very different need there. But the question of today, this is an immediate need. These organizations, we have seen some fail if they don't find some support today, and they need to think about how we do this differently. I also want to applaud the government because I think the mandate letters that just came out talk about a renewal of a relationship with the nonprofit sector as a whole, which is long overdue to think about how do we enable this sector, a sector that I think is often overlooked and often taken for granted? We're going to be there when you're when it's needed. But if you don't need it, it's not something that you give much passing thought to. The support, unfortunately, from government has not been, I think, it hasn't been modernized to keep up with the, the realities of how these organizations work. You've heard Maya say that these are large, complex organizations now who, who hold a mandate to do very difficult community work that has become increasingly complex because it's not just about the pandemic. It's about the opioid crisis. It's about what we see as a gun and gang violence that continues to explode in, in cities. It continues to be the concerns we see, again, for racialized communities and, and for Indigenous communities. These are exploding and have become more difficult and I think complex to manage. And so they're expensive solutions to the problem. But the organizational structures for that have not been supported in the same way. They haven't they haven't evolved in the same way that we've seen support, for instance, for the for the commercial or the for-profit sector over the years. So I think there's both a today we need to see this 18-month fund to get us through. And we need to see this commitment to transformation, that the sector can be better if it works in partnership with the government that understands how it now works and the complexities of working in, in the modern era of providing a broad social safety net, one that actually empowers, doesn't just catch people, but actually can empower people and push them into, as you say, getting youth employed, getting people things that empower them to become independent uh, and to take advantage of all that Canada has to offer. Jocelyn, when you look at transformation for the National Friendship Centers, it must come with a recognition that urban Indigenous people are a large part of our population that, that we need to serve. And that we, when we look at the federal financing model, which typically looks at housing and healthcare and addressing clean water and incredibly important issues and infrastructure gaps that have improperly existed for decades, we also have to recognize that, at least in Ontario, that a majority of Indigenous people live in our urban centers. And we need to make sure we are providing services and sufficient financial support 
to those Indigenous Canadians as well. If we're looking at transformation for your organization and for Indigenous people, presumably that that has to mean recognizing the significance of the urban Indigenous population. Absolutely. So I don't think a lot of folks are going to think about the not-for-profit sector and really think about Canadian constitution, but I mean, it's a reality for us, right? Like we can't be continually caught in these jurisdictional debates and, and wrangling about who's going to do what and who's going to provide what and when, because it really leaves people out and leaves people behind, certainly for Indigenous people, right? Like it, it's it's sort of important implies where we belong or where we are supposed to be instead of creating policy and programs based on what the realities are. So, I mean, we've always said, you know, absolutely, like First Nations, Métis, Inuit governments need to be supported to enact their jurisdiction over various areas. And we are 100%. I mean, these are the communities that we belong to, right? Like we we are totally in support of, of all of that. And we're trying to add a voice um, to say there are realities of Indigenous people that currently aren't reflected through the, the mechanisms that are available right now in the federal government. And provinces are really back and forth and, and, and up and down, depending on who who's in leadership, about where they see their role in it. And for Indigenous people, the crown is the crown. Like, it doesn't matter if it's provincial or federal. It's it's all the same, the same for, for us, right? So I think with friendship centers, you know, picking up on what Owen said later, if we didn't exist as a network across Canada, the time, the effort, the resources to build something like our network over again would be astronomical, right? If you think about over the last 70 years, the first friendship center started in the 1950s, we have been in the communities buying for Indigenous people and refining our service delivery model for for that period of time, right? Building strong partnerships, leveraging funds, leveraging anything that we can, you know, to the point of about $9 for every $1 of federal funding that we get. I think it's time to stop looking at the nonprofit sector, uh, charitable sector, as sort of a money taker and really look at what we actually do today and realize how much we hustle to stretch every single dollar and how much those resources save money for governments at the municipal, provincial, federal level, because it's work that they didn't have to do because we did that already in a way that was informed by, guided by, driven by the communities that we serve. My takeaway is if we can deliver support through a highly affected sectors program for travel and tourism, certainly we can deliver a bridge for the charitable sector that is serving 8 million Canadians and then and then more in the course of this crisis. So that's as far as the bridge goes. And then when you look at the priorities of the government to build back better, the charitable sector will be an indispensable partner. And so that there has to be that kind of transformation. We have a vast network of, of folks who who put their heart and soul in into the work that they do. And that's why I really love my my work is I talk to these executive directors of these friendship centers and, and our regions and just the 
immense efforts that they've been making to try to support their communities and make their communities better for such a long period of time. It's just, it's, it's inspiring and it inspires me to make sure that I'm driving as many resources as I can into their hands so that they can keep doing what they're doing and not have to take away their attention from the actual work to, to apply for every single little morsel of funds and grants that they can get their hands on, right? If that's a burden I can take on, but the policy pieces need to be in place. The The government needs to have an ear open to uh, to the ground on these things. There needs to be constant channels to, to hear what's happening and and uh, responsibility in government to be able to act on, on what they're hearing. So, you know, I think if there's a, a bright light that we've seen throughout this pandemic is really how this community within the not-for-profit and charitable sector has really come together we have something in common here and and let's pick up on that common thread and and advocate collectively because they think our voices have more power in in that sense this pandemic has obviously impacted everybody and, and we see so many people who who have struggled through it but i think what we are sometimes blind to is how much some are not just struggling but are being absolutely left behind or falling off the cliff and and it's the charitable and human services sector that is the one that is the cradle sort of catching all of those people right now. And it's struggling as a result. And it's struggling for not just the fact there's such a, such a demand, but because of the lack of resources to do it. So this is a time and I think this is a time in a, in a, in a sense of the budget. I mean, there was a, you know, there's been a time through 2020, but now that we're in 2021, I think this is our opportunity to say, let's make sure that we don't compound the effects of this pandemic and leave behind great swaths of the population who cannot benefit from all the, the good work that the economy will regain when the economy comes back. We want to make sure that as much as we've heard that there's a K-shaped economic recovery model, we don't want that. We want everyone to benefit from the recovery that will come, fingers crossed, uh, as vaccines roll out. And we need our agencies there to make sure people are ready the people we support are ready to, to, to accept that, one, to get that support, but ready to take advantage of that recovery when it comes. So this investment's needed. And I think it also offers the opportunity to, to build a new relationship with, with a sector that continues to be always there for all Canadians. You know, in Jocelyn saying, said, talked about being very proud to work in this sector, and, and it is an immensely moving um, and humbling experience to lead organizations like this, especially in this time, to see the dedication that staff and volunteers give every day to communities, but they need the support to do it. Uh, and, and right now they are struggling to do it, and, and the government needs to be there to support them in that work. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Uncommons. My guests today are, are exactly right. Our charitable and community service social support sector is unquestionably an integral part of our social safety net, a social safety net that we've never needed more. So I, I do hope as we look to the coming budget that we'll see that $700 million that they're asking for, that we'll see an appropriate bridge and then that commitment to, to transformation and to sustainable support, as Jocelyn put it. And I also want to pause for a moment and just, this has been an active conversation in our caucus, and I would just highlight the work of Mark Saray in particular, a colleague of mine who's led some of that work. And with that, remember to subscribe at uncommons.ca for future episodes. Leave a positive review if, if you like what we're doing. If you've got a guest or a topic you want me to tackle, do let me know. And otherwise, until next time. <laughs>